And we're back. And it's good to be back in your feeds this week. We've been plotting a relaunch of COINTELPRO for 2023, reimagining the format and content that we want to continue to deliver. It was a pleasure to deliver the first 57 episodes of the show since we started making it almost two years ago. While we're not completely ready to put the show out on a regular basis, the whole world seems to have gone mad in our hiatus. So we wanted to drop this one into your feeds because two of our favorite topics on COINTELPRO have been in the news this week geopolitics and unidentified aerial phenomena. On Friday afternoon of February 10th, 2023, U.S. fighter jets shot down an unknown aerial object that had been reportedly hovering over Alaskan waters at approximately 40,000 feet. At the recommendation of Pentagon officials, we learned that President Biden ordered the object to be destroyed. The next day, yesterday, at the time of recording, a joint operation between the U.S. and Canada downed another unidentified object over Canadian airspace. After hearing that information, most people would probably assume the Chinese government had sent another balloon or piece of airborne surveillance technology our way. And most people would assume that would justify orders from the president of the United States and the Pentagon to shoot it down. But as we've learned, the information surrounding this incident has been particularly vague, kind of murky. So here's John Kirby, the National Security Council's coordinator for strategic communications at a White House briefing yesterday. Uh, we're calling this an object because that's the best description we have right now. Uh, we do not know who owns it, uh, whether it's a whether it's state owned or, or or corporate owned or privately owned. We just don't know. Uh, we don't we don't know. As I said, state owned. We don't know if it's state owned, um, and we don't uh, understand the full purpose. We don't have any comp. We don't have any information that would confirm a stated purpose for this object. Um, we do expect to be able to recover uh, the debris uh, since it fell not only within our territorial space, but on what we what we uh, believe is is frozen uh, water. So uh, it, uh, a recovery effort will be made, um, and uh, uh, we're hopeful that it'll be successful, and then we can learn a little bit more about it. Compare that to the information available last week about the spy balloon. Reporting from several outlets concluded that President Biden and U.S. intelligence officials were well aware of the balloon having entered U.S. airspace long before its presence was disclosed to the public by the mainstream media. U.S. officials were wary of taking any sort of deliberate action to deal with the balloon as Secretary of State Antony Blinken was preparing to travel to China to meet with President Xi Jinping, a trip later aborted after the Biden administration failed to keep the balloon secret. And that's because by Thursday, February 2nd, the main newspaper for Billings, Montana, the Billings Gazette, published a picture and video of the balloon as it sailed over the local area. So a small Montana newspaper ended up forcing the Biden administration's hand, which I just love. I love that. It's great. As we're about to send the Secretary of State over to go and meet with President uh, Chi over there, a Montana newspaper 
just so happens to upend the entire thing. It's great. It's just, I love it. I bet, I bet they're pretty thrilled about that too. Oh but yeah. By Friday morning, the Chinese government had issued a statement saying that balloon was afloat for meteorological purposes and climate research. Dennis Wilder, the CIA's former deputy assistant director for East Asia and the Pacific, told Bloomberg News, quote, I don't know of anyone who constructs a meteorological balloon the size of three school buses, end quote. So let's now circle back to John Kirby's statement. Kirby specifically said U.S. defense officials were not certain about the object's origins, whether or not it came from a foreign country, private entity like an aerospace corporation, etc., in fact, he goes out of his way to clarify that the object had no visible features to indicate any sort of potential threat. At the recommendation of those same defense officials, President Biden ordered the object to be shot down when, less than two weeks ago, the Biden administration and the U.S. intelligence community were fully aware of a Chinese spy balloon coasting across the western part of the country, but were intentionally keeping its presence a secret in fear of escalating tensions with our biggest rival on the world stage. And Air Force fighter jets were scrambled to shoot down uh, this unknown aerial object Friday afternoon. And that story was on the front page of the New York Times within a matter of hours, which is a hell of a turnaround time compared to what we got with the Chinese balloon. Former guest of the show and co-founder of The Debrief, Tim McMillan, published a piece describing the object shot down this weekend to be balloons carrying small payloads. And McMillan tweeted Friday, Breaking, a U.S. intel official confirmed to me that the U.S. shot down an unidentified aerial object over Alaska Thursday night. And shortly after this tweet, the New York Times published the same information. Around 2.30 p.m. on Friday, John Kirby gave the public briefing on the incident. He stated it had been down approximately an hour before the presser. So this is kind of where things start to get interesting to me. So with that information... We can assume the object had been shot down around 1, 1.30 Eastern time over Alaskan waters on Friday. Tim McMillan pointed out that the Pentagon had sent out press advisories to media outlets announcing the conference around 10.45 a.m. Eastern time that very morning. So this means that three hours before they shot down the object, the Pentagon and the Biden administration were already preparing to make an announcement related to this. So we have very clear strategic planning around this event with a highly coordinated effort to disseminate information through the mainstream media to the public. This caught the eye of UFO and UAP enthusiasts on Twitter uh, because it seemed to be confirmation that the Alaskan object was able to evade radar detection for a period of time, which has been a characteristic in many of the hallmark uh, UFO UAP cases including the infamous encounter between the USS Nimitz, its naval pilots, and the Tic Tac UFO, as reported on in the New York Times. That's not to say we have an alien craft on our hands in the case of the Nimitz incident or three more recent cases, but the details continue to add up in a way that makes this entire situation highly suspicious. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby also noted yesterday that the object was floating in a northeasterly direction, was, quote, at the mercy of prevailing winds, end quote. At 40,000 feet, wind speeds could have been anywhere from 100 to 150 miles per hour, uh, which is certainly significant. 
Kirby added more details stating the object was the size of a small car, notably less than the Chinese balloon, which was estimated to have been the size of two or three school buses. An unnamed U.S. official told ABC News that the object was, quote, cylindrical and silverish gray, end quote. The same official also stated that it wasn't flying by any visible means of propulsion. UFO and UAP enthusiasts have latched onto these statements as indicative of something a little more strange than U.S. or even technology from a foreign adversary. As of Sunday morning, temporary flight restrictions are still in place in an area of airspace just off the coast of northeastern Alaska. That area is near the now defunct Bolin Point Air Force Station, uh, which had been regularly operated up until 2007. Um, Anchorage Daily News, the main newspaper for Anchorage, also reported that a temporary flight restriction had been in place before the shootdown. In fact, at noon on Sunday, the FAA issued a notice restricting territory over Lake Michigan as national defense airspace. Uh, that's likely the object that may have, at the time of recording, just been shot down over Lake Huron. Uh, Austin, you've been thinking about this back and forth nature of the descriptions uh, you know, of these objects that we've been getting. Um, yeah. you know, we talked about... Uh, you know, this description from one official, John Kirby, who said that this object was at the mercy of prevailing winds. You know, you have another official who said it was cylindrical and silverish gray and that it didn't have any visible means of propulsion, which is slightly different from saying that it was at the mercy of prevailing winds. Giving them the Pentagon a little bit, um, you know, sort of benefit of the doubt because they're operating at first on very limited information when trying to assess what these objects are. So you could use that argument as to why we were, we were given these very strange descriptions at first, but for them to, in their pressers, John Kirby specifically being asked, you know, is this another balloon? And they, they very forthright in that presser say, no, we don't think this is a balloon. But now we have members of the Gang of Eight in Congress, uh, like Chuck Schumer saying that, no, we're, we're pretty sure that the Alaskan object, the Canadian object, those two specifically, we're still waiting to hear back on uh, the one over the Great Lakes, but the Alaskan and Canadian objects were small balloons with heavy payloads, basically. So, again, yesterday on CNN, we have Natasha Bertrand talking with, uh, I think, somebody who was uh, with the Pentagon, and uh, they're talking about the descriptions of the objects given by pilots through you know numerous uh, defense sources there, and they specifically said on live national television that the pilots were unsure how this thing talking about the one over Alaska specifically was staying afloat at that altitude in those wind speeds. And they all seem to say that this was a cylindrical object that had no visible means of propulsion. And it's weird that they're using those terms as a balloon uh, because it, like that conversation they're they're really, it really seems like they're trying to frame it as some kind of aircraft there's, there's no indication in that conversation that they're saying this is a balloon. So you have that. And then 
basically the entire UFO community on, on Twitter takes that quote, like that conversation and runs wild with it because it's significant. I mean, those are really significant things to say on, on live national television as this entire story is continuing to unfold. So we get that. And then today we have a very immediate sort of story that comes out from Chuck Schumer, people in the gang of eight that are saying that we're, we're certain that these are balloons of some kind, you know, additional surveillance balloons. I find that also weird because I just saw earlier that we still haven't recovered these objects like in Alaska and where the Canadian object where both were downed, there's significant Arctic weather occurring and it's making the recovery effort for crash retrieval teams difficult. This story is going to be massaged as people kind of sink their teeth into it, because I think that we have a, a strange storm uh, in this bottle right now. Uh, and is that a mixed metaphor? Uh, I think I think that we have the, the, the perfect storm uh, right yeah. now where for whatever reason, uh, it sounds like it's the happenstance of people looking at the sky in Billings, Montana. But through some sort of happenstance, the Biden administration has been put under pressure by the appearance of these balloons over the United States, something which apparently has been routine going back to the Trump administration. Yep. The, these balloons have been out there, we, but the Biden administration's hand was kind of forced because of the coincidence of citizen journalism. And now in that heightened state of like politics and visibility, general and, hysteria, right, and, and everybody <laughs> like Tim McMillan uh, getting in the ear of their Intelcom contacts, uh, everybody's paying really close attention. And yeah. so the Biden administration under this type of pressure is heightening awareness and defenses and the posture of the military apparatus. And into that context, we're, we're having whatever, whatever this is, but, but I, I just can't emphasize enough how wary we should be of information that we're getting in our first pass right now, you know, because while we're able to observe this stuff through this heightened sense of awareness, this heightened moment of awareness, we may also be getting information that is being brought to us as quickly as possible, you know, yeah. because of the media climate that this is all growing out of right now. Uh, but that, that said, we should recognize that alone is strange. It is strange that we have gotten the amount of information we've gotten about any of this stuff. Yes. And, and and that that in itself bears talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it, it's one it's the thing that we can be most certain of. Uh, one of the other kind of wrenches thrown into this, sort of going back to what you were saying about why this is happening all of a sudden. Earlier today, like literally a couple of hours ago, uh, before we uh, recorded this, Lou Elizondo uh, tweeted. And so for those of listening who don't know who Lou Elizondo is, Lou Elizondo uh, is the former director of a literal Pentagon UFO program called ATIP, which was the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Uh, and it was under the umbrella program, which was called OSAP, 
So Elizondo resigned in 2017 from the Pentagon, uh, sort of in protest because they weren't they weren't giving things like this enough attention. That that our airspace was being routinely, you know, penetrated by possibly foreign objects, unexplained aerial phenomena, aka UFOs, yada yada. And so he tweets earlier today. Uh, friends, it's been a wild few days. I have been monitoring the situation closely. As many of you know, Montana is practically in my backyard. The recent shootdowns of balloons only underscores the importance of having full situation awareness of our skies. Here's another tweet here that follows up. This is one of the primary reasons I resigned from the Pentagon in 2017. No one was paying attention. Thanks to new legislation, we are now better prepared to monitor our skies and keep in mind, the more we look up, the more we are going to see. So that was, that struck me as, are we like possibly seeing the literal result right now of new legislation and the language that's been written that Biden signed into law, basically that like these are the new policies that we are going to share this information publicly and that what we're seeing right now is not new. There's nothing new about what we're seeing. It's just, it just so happens that the channels have opened from the catacombs of the defense department to mainstream media. And this, this information is getting out, or I guess like in this case, for example, we're seeing like widely publicly available information from like NORAD and other organizations like that. I don't know. I mean, I I think the Elizondo's timing of that is, is very peculiar him tweeting that. I think that's an interesting point that you make about this broader context of espionage uh, that has gone on between the great powers of the United States and and variously China, that we ought to be able to read the events of right now uh, into that history, right? And into that context. So maybe we should take a moment now to consider some of that history. So let's discuss the secret history of balloon espionage. From 1947 to 1949, the U.S. Army Air Force maintained a top-secret project called Project Mogul, which was run out of New York University. It conducted high-altitude surveillance with sophisticated balloons in order to detect sound waves, potentially generated by Soviet atomic weapons tests. Students of ufology likely know about Project Mogul as it was attributed by the U.S. government as the official explanation for the now infamous Roswell crash of an unknown object outside of Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. So many of us have been aware for years uh, that we sometimes use down surveillance balloons as cover for weird shit crashing in the New Mexico desert. It happens. Mogul enjoyed moderate success in its two-year run, but it is also notable 
for being the forerunner to subsequent programs during the Cold War. One of the more famous examples is the Skyhook Balloon Program, which started shortly after Mobile. Skyhook utilized high-altitude balloons as well, and were used by the United States Navy Office of Naval Research during the late 1940s and 1950s for certain kinds of atmospheric research. And over a 10-year period, Skyhook conducted more than 1,500 flights. That data was gathered by a program that was shared widely between the U.S. Navy's Office of Naval Research and European scientists. Project Mogul also spawned two major reconnaissance programs conducted by the U.S. Air Force during the Cold War, one of which was Project Moby Dick, a program that utilized large balloons with cameras attached to them that were floated over the Soviet Union to conduct surveillance. Moby Dick's balloons would take pictures of highly sensitive Soviet installations and military sites. The balloons would typically make their way to the Sea of Japan, where crews flying a C-119 flying boxcar would retrieve them. Another program from that time period was Project Genetrix. It was also maintained by the Air Force and used surveillance balloons manufactured by none other than General Mills. Yes, that General Mills. The cinnamon toast crunch people, of course. <laughs> We're making spy balloons for U.S. Air Force. It's just <laughs> great. It's great. <laughs> Genetrix flew balloons over China along with much of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Like Project Moby Dick, Genetrix took programs for intelligence gathering purposes. But one of the more notable features of this program was that its balloons reached altitudes of 50,000 to 100,000 feet, heights that were well above what aircraft at the time could easily reach. So we have an established history of states using balloons for spycraft, dating as far back as the start of the Cold War. This reality is now at the forefront of the American news cycle, dominating our current national security conversation. Can we honestly remember the last time we've seen such hysteria over an event like this? We should also take a look at the U.S. media establishment's coverage of this story on both sides of the mainstream political aisle. We saw nearly identical headlines and takes spanning from Fox News to CNN and MSNBC. Members of both major political parties called for the balloon to be shot down when official news broke. It's paramount for us to consider the fact that the U.S. government has historically used opportunities like this to mobilize mass public consent for military action. We've done a few episodes on instances like this from the U.S. wars with Mexico and Spain to the war on terror. So there's cause for skepticism about any information circulated to justify war. As the U.S. fights a proxy conflict with Russia and Ukraine, tensions with China are at an all-time high as well. We're seeing the formation of a new geopolitical bloc forming in the East. The real-time increase of trade relations between the Kremlin and Beijing have put much of the West on edge. They've done something that Marxist-Leninism could not do. They have made coherent, once again, uh, the alliance between Russia and China, uh, something which was unworkable at their moment of historical alignment in the 20th century. The U.S. government totally recognizes this reality, obviously, and patiently awaits China to make some sort of move for Taiwan 
a country that is literally at the center of the global microchip shortage. Taiwan has dominated the microchip industry for years now. So microchips are a ubiquitous piece of technology, as I'm sure a lot of you guys know. They're in almost everything, cars, coffee makers, smartphones. An estimated 92% of all microchips are made on an island that is less than one-tenth the size of California, that being Taiwan. China has viewed Taiwan uh, as a part of its own inevitable progress as a sovereign for years and has long considered it to be one of its primary geopolitical objectives. If China were to take control of Taiwan, uh, we would see a situation in which that government uh, would control a location that is structurally load-bearing to the global economy. Yep. If you were planning within the Chinese state for a grander imperial Chinese ambition, then you, you're in a perfect position to argue on the one hand that all you're pursuing you know, is Taiwan, and which is only politically separate from them because of the Western bourgeois sympathizers who fled during the Maoist rebellion in China and took up political control of the island where we now have the political formation of Taiwan. And so you can argue on the one hand that this is a regional interest of the Chinese government, something that has long been on the agenda, very similarly to what Vladimir Putin has argued about Crimea and about these regions that they've annexed in Ukraine. You know, But on the other hand, if you could make as your first move in a broader conflict controlling 92% of all of the microchips made in the world, then you would be in an interesting position in, in your geopolitical struggle, uh, a position that might put you in the driver's seat of a wider uh, conflict. And yeah, I think that that's, that's something that we should consider when it seems so incredibly unlikely that the Chinese would need to probe American defenses or, uh, you know, be testing out the response times and, you know, ordnance deployment of the American military along its, its northern border. And, and how, how good is the communication and the uh, collaboration between Canada and the United States, right? How quickly do they share information? How long does it take for you know, something that has entered the airspace of Canada and crossed over into the airspace of the United States, how long does it take for that information to be conveyed? Mm -hmm. What do they do in Alaska when, when that balloon first passes over, right? You know, these are, these are questions that people receiving data from these balloons now have a pretty clear answer to, especially if those balloons were attached to a payload that was collecting highly sophisticated quantum computing levels of information on right. their sort. And I just want to be clear that I, I am someone who very much acknowledges, I'll, I'll even use the word believes in, the reality of the mystery of the UFO phenomenon. I've had my own anomalous experiences myself that I can't rationally explain, but 
I know that we're we're all kind of clamoring for some bit of information about this ongoing story that's developing to be something related to aliens. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you guys right now, this is like to me, this just reeks of like some kind of danger that is exclusively a human problem. And it worries me. It worries me greatly uh, as this as this continues to unfold because there are some shady geopolitical games being played here. And I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, legitimate UFOs uh, flying around in our airspace. I would love to be proven wrong. I am a student of this subject and I love it. But in this case, I think there's something else. There's something else going on. The other opinion that deserves as much attention I, you know, in terms of interpretation of these events is, you know, that, oh, we're amid a legislative budget squabble for the next yeah. eight or nine months, probably, as long as it takes to, to sort out the, the new fiscal situation and the session of Congress. And, oh, look, look what's, uh, look what's crashed back up in the news. And there was a similar sort of convergence of, of these things. In the summer of 2021, you know, and, and, and also that, as we've already said in this episode, there's reason to be skeptical, right, of any of the actual information, the details of the information that we're receiving. And that the most interesting aspect of any of this is that we're getting any of this information at all. Another important like point that I kind of want to drive home here is that it's also possible the U.S. government is taking full advantage of the UFO UAP craze right now to stir up trouble. A double whammy. You drum up hysteria over Chinese technology in our airspace while also using that reality to discredit a very real mystery in our skies, as they've done now for 70 plus years. My problem with skeptics specifically on like Twitter, uh, are a lot of them are using this story right now at this very moment to discredit the entire narrative of the modern era. Basically we'll just say from 2004 up until the present. And uh, as a result, discrediting kind of the whole mystery in general, which we know through extensive documentation that this has been going on long before the Tic Tac incident in 2004 um, you know, we have all the accounts of the Foo Fighter UFOs that basically tailed Allied and Axis pilots in World War II. Uh, that's significant. The Swedish ghost rockets that were seen over uh, Sweden during uh, the beginning of the Cold War. We have the great airship flat mis- like mystery that occurred in the late uh, 1890s before any kind of dirigible was flying in the air. Like historically, uh, we were, people were seeing massive airships from Chicago all the way down to basically Southern California. So again, there's a long history of this and you, you can even circle back to the present. Uh, a lot of people listening might very well be aware of Ryan Graves, the uh, Naval pilot who, uh, famously, you know, he, he flew a lot of, uh, training missions and, around the 2014 to 2015 
uh, time period, you know, they were seeing all kinds of anomalous objects out over the Atlantic Ocean. We are playing some catch up right now in in noticing that, yeah, I mean, foreign adversaries are putting a ton of junk into our airspace for whatever spycraft uh, purpose. But then there are also legitimately weird things flying around at the same time that are well documented. So it, no skeptic in their right mind can sit and look at the Tic Tac UFO incident in 2004 and say that was a man-made drone or a balloon or any, any kind of technology manufactured by a foreign country. There's, it's just not, you, you can't make that argument. Based on the data that we have, the eyewitness testimony, it, it is highly indicative that it was something truly anomalous that we have no rational explanation for. You know, I, I'm I'm at a little bit of a loss for <laughs> what whatever is supposed to be the correct interpretation of these things. We have to remember too that there's not this grand, perfect scheme in place going on. <laughs> Somebody has to be in charge here. Yeah, yeah. So someone has to be in charge here, and I think that we just we we tend to forget how just yeah. absolutely flawed. Our government is how flawed human nature and human beings are. There, there very well could be a plan in place right now that is utilizing sophisticated propaganda to be disseminated to the public in order to get the American public up in arms over China and what they're doing, sending their nasty balloons at us. That, that could very well be a reality. But we have to recognize that the people on the other end of that, the ones that are running something like that, are not perfect, they're going to make mistakes. And it's possible that the rollout of the narrative that we're seeing in the mainstream media right now is like a like a very good example of that. We we've seen wildly conflicting reports from the start of the story as it's hit, you know, the mainstream airwaves uh, up until today at the time of this recording, where we're now getting what is supposed to be a more clear picture of this. Um, that being, hey, these are just balloons that were carrying heavy payloads. But that description is also, it, it, it contradicts what was originally said and given by the pilots who actually went and intercepted these things and did the original flybys to gather preliminary intelligence on what they were seeing. I think it's also uh, sort of significant to mention this. I, I This had just popped into my head as we've started to talk about this, but you know, you and I, we have spoken to some individuals in the global intelligence community and certain journalists who are well connected in the in the global intelligence community and these are individuals who are very wired into uh the ufo subject and that subject's relations to intelligence and those people have said many times they've heard rumblings about a coming catastrophe like that's a worry. They're, they're, they're worried that something is going to happen at some point, whether it's, you know, environmental disaster, or if we're talking about another global conflict, another world war, uh, and it is somehow connected to the UFO mystery in some way. And I think that's, that's, that's always struck a chord with me specifically because, uh, some of these people that we've talked to, you know, have kind of maintained that the timeline for these things are, are lining up 
in this in this bizarre way. You know, we're, we're right now it, a part of Europe is basically living in fear of the you know the, the president of Russia possibly detonating a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Every day as that war kind of rages on and becomes more hopeless for Russian interests to, to maintain any kind of control of Ukraine. And then we have here, what's going on right now on the news, increased tensions with China. Uh, and the overarching sort of story that's people, most of the general public hasn't been paying attention to really until this weekend is, is, is the, the UFO mystery. All of a sudden, it's now at the forefront of American news, and people are starting to pay attention to that. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm very suspicious of all of these wildly existential crises sort of happening at the same time, almost. Is that that's really what it seems like. And we're also, at the same time, staring down the barrel of environmental catastrophe with climate change. All of these things happening at once. It's just weird. It's weird to me that that we're we're reaching what seems like a legitimate breaking point. And you have to wonder. You have to wonder. You know, we've been uh, we've been asleep, especially here in America, going about our daily lives. And is a degree of that about to be interrupted by something? You know, and I, I'm not I'm not over here advocating for at all at all for going to war with China or Russia or, or anyone in that matter, like physically putting American boots on the ground in Eastern Europe or uh, in Asia um, or the South Pacific, you know, China Sea, no, nothing like that. It's just like it, something is happening right now. There, there is a buildup to something major occurring. You know, this is something that we haven't talked about very effectively, I think, on the show encounter to what might be perceived as this show's sense of doomerism, right? Uh, you know, that we make we, a show. We are here. a little bit of doomers here on Cohen Tulper. We, we fully admit that. But that's what makes it fun. We make a show that's about decline and structural crisis in the 21st century. It's entirely possible, right, that what we're going to experience of this rupture that seems to be uh, in the background of either of these two interpretive lenses, these two themes that we talk about on this show, whichever one that you favor, you know, seems to point in the same direction. It's one of the reasons why we do this show, right, is because there is, you know, this this alignment in the themes that we choose to talk about, right, that that they come together to point in this direction, you know? And, and I, I think that I also want to emphasize the possibility that this is also going to be slow moving and, and boring. Yeah. And <laughs> that the, the thing about living through a disaster is, is exactly that, right? Is that it's something that plays itself out slowly you know, and it, it it hits you finally when it's right. far too late to make right. any sort of significant fix and yeah. and the, the the our view of decline and structural crisis and collapse or whatever you want to call it is that right is that is that what are the ways in which 
this slow moving catastrophe will right. will befall us. And yeah. and I think that when you're confronted with something that feels like it's happening very fast, like whatever it is that we're going through right now, it may be important to remember that this is just a day in a slow moving catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and to try to use that to, to guide your interpretation of yeah. what's going on when when it seems like there are you know days where years happen and you know years where nothing happens. Where uh, mankind is instead of driving the bus, you know, eighty miles an hour towards the cliff, it's driving at a measly, you know, maybe one to five miles an hour towards the cliff but as we're as we're driving we're, we're noticing you know weird things flying around out sky, you know out in the sky outside the bus and we're asking what those weird things are doing and it's complicating the the drive towards the cliff 